Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We turn now to look at events that unfolded over the weekend related to the school shooting in Michigan that took four lives and wounded seven others. The parents of the alleged teenage shooter were charged with involuntary manslaughter Saturday, with Michigan prosecutor Karen McDonald calling the actions of the parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, egregious. I have shared previously, and I will reiterate today, that gun ownership is a right, and with that right comes great responsibility. Charges against parents in school shootings are rare. We look at why and what potential impact parental criminal liability has in preventing shootings by minors. And for that, we're joined by John Woodrow Cox, an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post and also author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. John Woodrow Cox, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you remind us what the parents of the shooter have been charged with? What involuntary manslaughter means and, and means in Michigan? So, um, you know, it's it's really extraordinary, frankly, that, that they're being uh, charged with such serious crimes. Uh, and it's, it's because of the very high bar that those specific charges uh, come with. Both parents are charged with four counts each of involuntary manslaughter, which uh, would require the prosecutor to prove that they knew that this uh, this would happen, that this would be the result, or they had a reckless disregard. That is uh, my uh, understanding of what the prosecutor will have to prove before a jury. Um, but you know what she alleged, uh, the level of negligence that she alleged uh, in in that press conference was, I think, the worst that I have. Uh, ever heard of uh, when it comes to a school shooting. I anticipate that the defense will counter that argument and say that she was, uh, that, that what those allegations are not accurate. But based on what she said, I, I cannot think of a case uh, of, of worse alleged negligence. Yes, talk about that. What were some of the charges that the prosecutor outlined that, that struck you so much? Well, just the level or the acts of, as well. Sorry, not just charges, but the acts of the parents, the acts. Right. Yes. What they what they knew in advance. I mean, so the the, the first aspect of this is that they bought this this firearm uh, as a Christmas gift, quote Christmas gift, uh, as as his mother described it on social media uh, for their son. Um, you know, he posted a photo with the six hour nine millimeter. Um, it's calling it my new beauty. Uh, and said that he would answer questions of anybody who had any. Uh, you know, just before the shooting, um, a teacher saw uh, that he was looking up, uh, searching online. This was on the Monday before the shooting, uh, searching online for ammunition, where to buy ammunition, and alerted uh, the parents to this. And the mother, Jennifer Crumbly, texted uh, him specifically, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. 
in the hours before the shooting, there was a parent teacher meeting because they had found this note um, that the, the teenager had written uh, that was, you know, it was, it was violent. He was using violent language and drawing violent images and clearly fantasizing about a school shooting. There's this parent teacher meeting and they resisted, uh, allegedly resisted the idea of him being taken out of school that day. And, and they did not search his backpack, you know, knowing that he had access to a firearm. They didn't think to, or they just didn't look in his bag to see if there was a gun there. And, you know, hours later, the shooting started, you know, now four, four kids are dead. What also about the fact that the parents, the prosecution says that they went missing on Friday afternoon, right. potentially fleed, though defense attorneys say that there was some miscommunication around that and that that wasn't their intent. Yeah, that is still sort of very much in dispute. What, why exactly they they left? I mean, the way that certainly the prosecution and law enforcement has framed this is that this was uh, they were in hiding. You know, that they were actively, um, you know, running away, trying not to be caught. And the evidence implies that you know that that's what was happening. I mean, they knew certainly who was looking for them, and they had known that for for quite a long time before they mm -hmm. were caught. Uh, and, you know, there's that in, part of the investigation is ongoing. The person who allegedly harbored them, um, you know, they were nowhere near uh, their hometown, you know, the place where the shooting occurred. So, Yeah, well, we'll talk more with John Woodrow Cox right after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure... The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Michigan prosecutors' decision to bring involuntary manslaughter charges against the parents of the teenager accused of killing four classmates at his high school last week and wounding seven others. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your reactions to the Michigan prosecutor's decision to charge the parents of the 15-year-old? Are you a gun owner? What do you think of safe storage laws? What questions do you have about safe storage laws or parental liability in school shootings? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Do you agree with the Michigan prosecutor's decision? John Woodrow Cox, one of the things that you have done is an analysis of school shootings, sources for the weapons that are used and so on. What does your research tell you about the potential effectiveness of the threat of parental liability in preventing gun violence? I mean, how much of, of it is related to, to parents' guns or parents' handling of those kinds of weapons around their children? So, you know, we know, uh, uh, sort of broad strokes, we know that if children did not have access to firearms, more than half of the school shootings, well more than half of the school shootings since Columbine would never have happened. Um, 
so that is something you know when i often talk about this and i i dive deep into it in my in my book uh if that was the one change we made as related to guns overnight uh it would have a dramatic effect simply if adult gun owners locked up their firearms if they didn't let those firearms fall into the hands of of children uh, we did a review back in 2018 where we were trying to figure out how often parents were charged uh with these crimes and found that uh, among 105 cases in which the source of the weapon was identified, these are juvenile shooters, 80% of the time the, the gun was taken from the child's home or those of friends or relatives. At that time, this was in 2018, just four adults had been convicted for failing to lock up the guns uh, that were used. So, you know, we knew at that time it was incredibly rare. And part of that certainly was because of the lack of storage laws, these uh, child access prevention laws, uh, safe storage laws, the, those are the terms we use for those. And they're basically laws that, broad strokes, they mandate that uh, adults lock up their firearms. And if their firearms fall into the hands of a child, and that child uses that gun to harm themselves or someone else, then the adult gun owner can held be held criminally liable. Um, we know that those laws are effective. Uh, they, uh, the Rand Corporation has done an ongoing uh, study of basically every bit of research available out there on gun policy and consistently found that safe storage laws make the biggest difference. They, there is the most evidence to show that they prevent things like violent crime, that they uh, reduce risk of accidental shootings and that they reduce suicide. These do make a difference. At the same time, we know that uh, prosecutors often don't use these laws or the laws yes. are too weak. Right? Why is that? Uh, well, that because so of the weakness of the law or other reasons? The, often it's the weakness of the law. I know of uh, anecdotally, I know of, of several cases in which the prosecutor decided not to use the law because it was only a misdemeanor. And they felt like, well, this is too serious. So let's say if Michigan did have this law and it was the it was similar to what we see in other states and it was it came with misdemeanor charges it's highly unlikely that the prosecutor would have actually used that law in the state of michigan because she wants felony serious felony charges that will come with substantial prison time that's what she was pursuing in this case so a misdemeanor child access law uh would not have been uh effective i think in terms of what the prosecution wanted to pursue. Where, where we need more research, but where I theorize, having reported and researched this subject for many years, I think there is an element of education that occurs when a state passes one of these laws. And what that means is that you know most gun owners, in my experience, want to do the right thing. They don't, in fact, want their child to find their gun and shoot themselves or shoot their neighbor or their sister or brother or cousin. They don't want that to happen. But they are un, under the uh, misguided uh, uh, belief that they can educate their kid out of making a bad choice with a gun. This is a commonly held belief among gun owners, partly because the NRA has pushed that idea that you can educate a child out of making bad choices with a gun. It is fundamentally untrue. It's proven to be untrue. Um, but when this law comes along and suddenly you have a child access, access prevention law in your state, it's my suspicion that a great many gun owners just decide based on that suddenly uh, that liability that they need to lock up their firearms. Um, and that's where I think we see that effectiveness, because I don't think it's coming on the other end where, you know, people are 
being punished criminally over and over through these laws, because we, we know that's that's not that common, at least mm-hmm. as it relates to school shooting. Well, let me go to caller Adam in San Francisco. Hi, Adam. Hello. Go right ahead. Hello, this is Adam. I um, just want to comment that I'm so pleased that these parents are being charged. I, I think that they they desperately need to uh, make an example with this because, you know, sensible gun laws are what is needed in order for the guns to go forward. Too many people are uh, anxiously trying to end the Second Amendment, and these are the people that, that, that help create that kind of atmosphere. We need sensible gun laws. California laws seem to be working. Oh, it's hard to uh, imagine people's mentality when they are uh, capable of doing such things. I grew up with guns. I had guns in my house when I, mm. I never had any kind of idea of any kind of this preposterousness that has happened since Columbine. Mm. Adam, thanks. Um, curious, John, who is opposed to gun laws or parental liability laws related to children um, committing acts with with guns. Because I remember from our conversation in April where you were discussing, as you said earlier, sort of parents can sort of be misinformed about whether or not their kids will actually be curious, curious enough to try out their gun, that they can just sort of educate them out of it. Um, we also talked about how generally there is bipartisan agreement around mm-hmm. trying to make sure that guns are stored safely and and kept from children. Right. You know, that is one unique thing about these sorts of laws is they actually do nothing to, uh, let's say, affect someone's constitutional right to go out and buy firearms, to own firearms. You know, uh, as I write in my book, you know, you can still go buy 15 AR-15s if you want to. But what these laws require is that you are responsible with the guns that you have, that you don't let those firearms fall into the hands of, of children. Where I think there is some discomfort and where there is some pushback on these specific laws uh, is among gun owners who behave the same way with their guns, as they think it's perfectly fine for their child to have access to their firearms. In fact, I've heard the argument in some places that, well, it's actually necessary because what if there's a home invader? I want my teenager to be able to get the gun and shoot the home invader, which is uh, near fantasy. I mean, that, that is so incredibly rare, that exact sort of specific scenario, when you compare it to how often that same child would get that gun and take their own life intentionally or by accident. I mean, it's, I don't know what the numbers are, but hundreds and hundreds of, uh, to one. Uh, it's, you know, far, far, far more likely that a firearm in the home is going to harm the child than the child is going to use the gun to, you know, uh, take the life of a home invader. So uh, that is where, though, you might see some discomfort. I, in 2018, I went to Kentucky to write about a school shooting there. Uh, a, a teenager, 15-year-old, you know, the same age as, as the kid in, uh, in Michigan, got his stepfather's gun. It was unlocked. He had access to lots of ammunition. He took it to school. He shot uh, 16 people in less than 10 seconds. He killed two of them. And the prosecutor there uh, seriously considered charging the parent. Um, he ultimately decided he, he couldn't come up with a charge that he thought would stick. But in talking to gun owners in that community, what I kept hearing over and over is you would have a jury of people looking at this guy and saying, well, 
my gun at home isn't locked up. What if my kid or my grandkid takes that gun and uses it to shoot somebody else? Should I be, uh, should I be charged too? So, you know, that's where I think there has to be, to make progress on this issue, there has to be a cultural shift. And it seems like the, the, those laws could actually start that conversation, right? Where somebody, at least for the first time in their life, thinks, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't trust my kid with access to that firearm. Well, there are a couple of comments coming in around the same idea of accessory to murder. Paul writes, it seems to me that accessory before the fact is the more appropriate charge for the parents since they obtained the weapon, which, as I understand it, the child could not legally purchase. The crime they aided in is murder, not manslaughter. Edward tweets, all gun owners should be charged with accessory to any crime committed by the gun, regardless if it was lost, loaned, or was stolen. Whoever buys the gun is responsible for the gun and the crimes committed with it. What do you think about that? Is there any movement in that direction? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, the, the bar is very, very high uh, to charge uh, anyone in a gun crime unrelated to the person who pulled the trigger. You know, the, maybe the one exception is when we talk about felony murder, and that's a case where, let's say, three people are robbing someone. Uh, one of those people who is committing the robbery has a gun, shoots someone and kills them, then uh, often others involved in the robbery will also be charged with uh, felony murder. But, um, you know, historically, it has been very, very difficult to uh, charge someone with any kind of serious crime. Uh, you know, this is even in cases where you have gun traffickers who are selling guns to gang members who they then know are going to use those guns to murder people. I mean, where there is knowledge ahead of time, which is maybe even a step further than you would see with the parent being negligent with the gun. These are, these are people who are selling guns to people who they then know are going to use them to commit murders. So, and not even in those cases do you see uh, accessory oftentimes. So uh, this will be a fascinating case study. And I think a lot of other prosecutors will look at this case and say, you know, do these charges stick in a state that is, you know, uh, purple, maybe leans a little bit red. Uh, you know, it's certainly not a, um, a liberal state, quote unquote. So whether these charges stick, I think will send a message to lots of other prosecutors and maybe to other parents to say that, oh, this is the potential. This is the potential outcome if someone is negligent with their firearm. John Woodrow Cox is enterprise reporter for The Washington Post, author of Children Under Fire and American Crisis. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Joel in Pacifica next. Hi, Joel. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning to you. Go right ahead. Um, I have a simple question. Since the Michigan uh, prosecutor is going to find, is looking to find the parents criminally liable for this, what effect will that have on the prosecution of the child? The child's certainly looking more sympathetic to me uh, as I learn what the parents' role in all of this was. I wonder what kind of legal ramifications they, that has for the kid. Hmm. John Woodrow Cox, any ideas? I think that'll be fairly limited. I mean, the part of the defense's argument will be will be that they'll say likely, uh, you know, the defense's argument on behalf of the the child, they'll I'm sure put blame on um, the the parents and they'll put blame on the school and uh, because that's the job of a defense attorney, right? Is to is to to spread the blame. I don't believe there is any dispute 
however, uh, about who committed this act. You know, I don't think anyone's disputing that. Uh, you know, they, they know who the shooter is. He took four lives. You know, he ended four lives and, and wounded, gravely wounded a number of other people. So while that will be an argument, uh, you know, this, you, this case may not even get to that point. You know, they may not even get to a, to a jury. But I'm sure the defense will, will use that argument. But they're still dealing with a set of facts that are beyond dispute. We know who pulled the trigger. And um, so that's going to be a hard thing to, to get over, I think. Amy writes, the whole story is so disturbing and tragic. I'm so confused as to why the school officials did not do more. They saw the notes he'd written, which were violent and bloody, and he actually asked for help in one note. I cannot believe the principal, counselors, and teachers allowed him to go back to the classroom, and no one searched his backpack. Unbelievable. John Woodrow Cox, we did hear Prosecutor Karen McDonald tell CNN this morning that school officials in Michigan had legal grounds to search the teenager's backpack but mm -hmm. failed to do so. I'm curious about prosecutors potentially turning their attention to the culpability of the school and what effect you think that might have as well in terms of prevention. Yeah, you know, that is a very good question. Um, it is a very good question. And I think one that, um, you know, there's going to require a lot more investigation. I think, you know, his, just speaking historically, it would be exceedingly rare for a criminal case to be brought against a teacher or an administrator. In this case, I can't even think of one that would be virtually unheard of. What is not unheard of is uh, civil litigation. That feels... Um, uh, likely in this in this case, I mean, we've seen it in cases where there was uh, far less alleged negligence on behalf of a school, and the school gets sued, uh, and you know is is held liable to some degree. So you know, it's it is a, it is a bit of a mystery, you know, why a, a kid who was um, clearly having violent thoughts and had now the school did not, I guess, know that he had access to a firearms. His parents did know. Um, so who was to more to blame about not searching that backpack is, is certainly going to be a point of debate, but there will be a lot of scrutiny applied to the school, why he was allowed to go back to class, why maybe law enforcement wasn't immediately called when they found threats, him writing threats, uh, drawing threats. Um, I think in other school districts, probably law enforcement would have been, um, called in right at that moment. So a lot of questions yet to be answered. Well, this listener writes, the core issue is how do teenagers get to be this way? How does someone like the shooter get to the point where they snap and plot and plan and pick up a gun and start shooting people either at a school or any public place? This is what we need to learn about and discuss, not we need real gun control. John Woodrow Cox, um, when I talked to you earlier this year, we talked about mental health, but we talked about mental health related to the impact on the survivors on the children, on the students who survive, on a community. Can you just give us a sense of what you must be thinking this community and the survivors of the shooting are going through and what they face coming ahead since you researched it so deeply? Yeah, I mean, the ripple of these things is so gigantic. You know, we think about it in terms of the four who died, right? They're the ones who are in the headlines. And then maybe we think about it in terms of the seven others who were shot that is a fraction, a fraction of the pool of trauma that something like this will cause. It's all their families and all their friends and their cousins. It's all the kids who are hiding in classrooms thinking that they would also die. 
It's the teachers and administrators who thought the same, plus all their families. It's the first responders and their families. It's the reporters. It's the journalists who are on the ground there uh, doing these interviews. I mean, the, the, the pool of people who will live with this for years is in the thousands, potentially the tens of thousands. That's what we, we never really come to grips with uh, when it comes to these acts of, of gun violence is the ripple. It's gigantic. It is not four or 11. It is it is thousands. And, uh, uh, you know, I feel for these people because I, you know, I've reported <laughs> a decade later on people who are still struggling with profound trauma after events like this one. So everybody needs to understand that the journey of grief will last years. It won't be weeks. It won't be months. It will be years. And in the meantime, I think it was a Washington Post database that has found that in 2021, there have been more school shootings, 34, than in any year since 1999. Um, John Woodrow Cox, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to Susan Britton and Ariana Prell for producing today's segment and our listeners for their participation. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.